Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt. I identify as a cis white gay man and a Chicago resident, but most importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining me is Anais Cotillas. Uh, Anais, thank you for uh, sharing your time with us today. Can you go ahead and um, introduce yourself, your pronouns, and your role here at Howard Brown? Sure. Yeah, my name is Anais Cotillas. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the program manager for diabetes case management and care coordination services. Diabetes case management and care coordination services. I always have to like stutter through people's titles on this show because everybody has either long titles uh, or multiple titles here at Howard Brown. So um, everybody's doing the most, which I appreciate. We all wear a lot of hats. Exactly. Um, So whether you know it or not, this month is uh, Diabetes Awareness Month, I think is the official, or is it Diabetes Care Month? So it's National Diabetes Month or American Diabetes Month. Okay, okay, specifically. Okay, Mm -hmm. so um, I brought you on to talk about diabetes, which I really appreciated um, writing out like my thoughts and questions for this episode because I've had a lot of topics on the show um, and a lot of them are like very specific and very interesting and things I know nothing about but diabetes never really crossed my mind as something to learn more about uh, which sounds horrible uh, but I in, in writing out these questions I was like wait I know what I learned in like health class in high school and nothing beyond that. Uh, And so I'm excited to dive into all the nuances and intricacies as it relates to the patient population of Howard Brown, um, everything like that. So without further ado, um, first question on my list, (laughs) which we were talking beforehand might seem like a dumb question, but I just want to establish a baseline knowledge for everybody. Mm -hmm. What is diabetes? And can you give us a quick overview uh, and rehash the difference between type 1 and type 2 for those that aren't aware. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am not a clinician by any means, but I've been in the field for several years now. Um, So diabetes is a chronic condition that impacts how our bodies use food for energy. So when we eat, our bodies turn that food into sugar, which then, you know, that sugar gets released into our bloodstream. So when our blood sugar levels rise, that sends a signal to our pancreas and our pancreas is uh, producing insulin. And that signal says, okay, it's time to release insulin. So you can think of insulin as a key and the cells in your body as little houses. So insulin is the key that opens up the house to allow sugar to come inside and be used as energy. So for folks living with diabetes, like they might not be producing enough insulin or cells might be resistant to insulin. So basically like those keys like might not work or fit the lock or there might not be enough keys like floating in your body. Mm -hmm. So that results in these high, you know, blood sugar levels that can be hard for the body to control without those keys. So over time, like that can cause some some complications. Uh, But there are several different risk factors when it comes to type one and type two, but the key difference is that type one is an autoimmune condition. So the body is literally attacking the cells that produce insulin. So folks with type one cannot produce any. Uh, it's typically diagnosed earlier in life, but we've definitely worked with patients that you know haven't found out that they have type one until they're in their 20s. Mm-hmm. So folks with type one truly need insulin to survive. Um, type two is 
multifactorial, meaning that there are multiple factors that go into the development of type 2. So the body probably doesn't use insulin well and then can't keep the blood sugar at a healthy range. So the body is just like resistant to the keys the pancreas is producing. So it develops over the course of time and people might not experience symptoms for a while until they go to their PCP and say like, hey, I'm getting this like tingling or numbness or, you know, my vision's a little bit blurry. And then, you know, that's when they get their diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is, that is a wonderful overview, and I thank you for using the metaphor of, like, keys and houses, because that was the only way I ever understood, like, difficult concepts in, like, biology or just even now uh, is metaphors, so I appreciate that. Sure. Um, is that right? Metaphor, analogy? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I, clearly, I didn't pay attention in high school English either, but... Um, <laughs> So, so type one is autoimmune. So that's something that your body is, is born with generally. Um, and it's just there. And then type two is something that can develop based on other factors, um, like diet and lifestyle and things, or am I wrong? That is a component of it. Yeah. That is a component of it, but not the only reason for its development. Cause I feel like that is, um, the narrative that I hear most often with type two, is that misplaced? What other components go into that? Yeah. So, um, there are so many different like risk factors, like even for type one, we don't really know the reason Mm. for it. Like some researchers have noted that some things like genetics and viruses can be risk factors, but for type two risk factors can be family history, age, race, ethnicity, and lifestyle factors. So like, Over time, diabetes can cause complications like nerve damage, which then impacts the heart, the feet, the eyes, and more, resulting in things like kidney problems, amputations, and vision loss. But I think, yeah, key takeaway is that, like, lifestyle factors is just one component of many. Gotcha. Yeah, because that's always how it was portrayed to me. And, like, high school health was, like, just your lifestyle, and it's good to be reminded that there's other factors beyond you know, just that, that small portion of it. So, um, type one and type two, while they differ, is the course of of treatment and or management, um, the same for both or what does that look like? Um, it can be similar, but not necessarily the same. Um, so for type one, like I said, like folks are insulin dependent, whereas like with type two, folks typically start with an oral medication. So you might've heard of metformin, like that is Mm -hmm. like the frontline medication that folks typically get when they're diagnosed. Um, And then over the course of time, as like complications arise or, you know, as management changes, uh, like folks might end up having to take insulin or like other injectables, you know, there's just so Mm -hmm. many factors that go into like, whether it be age, Um, And some folks just have like really complex types of diabetes that don't always respond to, you know, typical frontline medications like metformin and have to use more specialized medication. Um, So insulin isn't always required for both types. It is absolutely required for type one, but not always for type two. Gotcha. Okay. That that plays into my next question, which is what's the challenge of of treating diabetes, uh, particularly as it relates to the types of communities that we serve. And you answered a little bit in that, like it it sounds very specific to each person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we like as 
healthcare providers want to individualize, um, you know, treatment and management for folks, and we want to make sure that we're using methods that work for them. Um, but yeah, when it comes to diabetes, it's all about management. There's like a lot involved in managing diabetes. It's often super exhausting for patients, given that there's just like constant decision making involved. So we try to focus on seven self-care behaviors, and those are healthy coping, healthy eating, being active, taking medication, monitoring, problem solving, and reducing risks. So those are like the core behaviors that we really try to work with patients on, and we work with patients to make lifestyle changes, whether that's changes around what they eat, moving more, drinking water, identifying oral and injectable medications that work for them, helping them practice, take their insulin, check their blood sugar, and support them in just like, you know, managing all of those things at once and overall finding and living a lifestyle that works for them. Like 20% of management is going to happen in the provider's office and 80% mm. happens outside. So we want to ensure that we're giving folks the tools they need to be able to manage that 80% of yeah. the time. Um, and when it comes to our community, like there's so many challenges. Um, I mean, behavior change is hard for anyone, like even folks not living with diabetes. So when you add like inadequate resources, um, you know, intersecting identities, whether that be race, ethnicity, like LGBTQ and queerness, um, you know, when you add all of those things together and trying to engage in behavior change, like it adds just so many layers and additional challenges. So like Howard Brown serves anyone regardless of their ability to pay. So our staff work heavily with patients that are experiencing socioeconomic challenges. So folks that are undocumented, folks that are experiencing financial insecure, insecurity, food insecurity, transportation barriers, violence, social isolation, homelessness, like the list goes on. Um, but if you have insulin that needs to be stored in the fridge and you're living on the streets, like how is it possible to manage, you know, or if you're food insecure, you're going to eat anything you have access to. And that makes it impossible to make healthy choices because there are no choices except for the food that's in front of you. So our approach is really individualized and prioritizes like not only helping folks work with what they've got, but also helping folks access resources to improve their quality of life. Snaps for everything you just said, because you, one, delivered that flawlessly, and two, there was so much good information packed into there. So I got to um, wrap my mind about everything I want to, to bring up in regards to that. So you drove home a point uh, that I think, if you've been listening to the podcast routinely, uh, people are getting and understanding now, which is the social determinants of health. So how much care is actually done in a doctor's office versus how much care is done by the patient outside of it and is determined by their lifestyle and their resources and everything like that. Um, it reminded me of uh, like trying to get people on prep. Um, prep right now is a pill a day, which is seems doable, but for a lot of reasons, people might be able, not be able to do that. And so now um, injectable prep has hit the market, which is mm -hmm. good for a month. So that is a big, um, a big, uh, a plus for communities that don't have access to a pill a day or have a hard time, you know, regulating that schedule. They can just get one injection and be done. So um, are there, all that to say, are there that many varieties of treatment in regards to insulin or um, the different medications where we can 
kind of tailor it and give people an alternative if they're unable to, you know, meet the the, the requirements or the scheduling of other medications or are we pretty limited in what we're able to offer people? Because like prep, you have like those two options. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think there are options with diabetes, um, but it's a lot about sort of like tricking the system and finagling mm. with insurance companies and the pharmacy. I mean, like there's just so much involved in diabetes management because we're not only talking medication. Like, yeah, we're talking oral medication. We're talking insulin potentially, but we're also talking like uh, blood sugar monitors, test strips, mm. lancets to prick your fingers so that you can test your blood sugar. And then there's like more advanced technology that we're getting um, patients on a lot more now called uh, continuous glucose monitors. And oh. those are monitors that basically like there's an adhesive patch that you can put on your arm or on your abdomen. And that is testing your blood sugar 24 mm seven -hmm. and sending signals to your phone saying, hey, you've got low blood sugar, you've got high blood sugar so that you are empowered to make treatment decisions for yourself on the spot, which is incredible, but also can be very challenging to, you know, navigate the healthcare system. And for someone who has no idea how to navigate insurance and pharmacy issues, like that's where, you know, our team really can come in and support. Um, because those, I mean, for, for someone, even as a healthcare professional, like I find myself stumped with some issues at times. And so I can't imagine what just like an average person interacting with the healthcare system, it, the, the level of frustration that comes with that is enormous. Yeah. And you played right into my uh, question, a couple of questions on, so I'm just going to jump right to it. Um, I get that because even in my very limited health problems that I've been trying to solve dealing with insurance and getting medication, um, especially like moving here from a different state and then switching healthcare providers. All, all of that is difficult for someone like me who has a lot of resources and a lot of privilege in that area. And so I can't imagine how difficult it would be for someone who doesn't have that. So that's where Howard Brown steps in, I'm assuming, yes. to try to help. So can you dive into a little bit more of what your day-to-day -day case management looks like or examples? I know you just kind of did, but uh, about what kind of steps we take or places we refer people to um, or services we offer to try to get people as much as we can in the way of treatment and management for diabetes. Yeah. Um, I mean, case management is just one part of like the incredible team that we've built at Howard Brown for diabetes care. So we actually have a very interdisciplinary team, meaning we have folks from all walks of life, all different levels of education and disciplines. So we have a diabetes education team. Um, so we have two diabetes educators. One is a registered dietitian and one is a pharmacist. Oh. And they do that heavy individual counseling with folks to really cover just like the sort of like what we call the diabetes checklist, like very much associated with the seven self-care behaviors that I mentioned before and sort yeah. of going through that and making sure that folks are given the tools and the knowledge to manage. And then we have a lot of other supports around that. We have a volunteer endocrinologist who provides that sort of like high level clinical expertise oh. to our educators, to, you know, our non-clinical staff, um, we have our case management program, which really focuses on those social determinants of health, like you mentioned. So we, you know, obviously have an understanding of the challenges of diabetes, but also how that intersects with just like daily life, the resources, the basic necessities that people need. Mm -hmm. um, and so we help connect them to 
resources in the community. We help them apply for public benefits, but we also help them make sure that they're like staying on top of taking their medication and you know, attending all the appointments that they need to attend. I mean, with diabetes, like you're not just seeing your primary care provider and that's it. Like you're probably seeing an endocrinologist. If you have complications, you're probably seeing a podiatrist to make sure that, you know, your feet are healthy. You definitely should be seeing a dentist um, to keep that oral health of an ophthalmologist or vision provider to make sure that you're not losing your vision Mm -hmm. because that is definitely something that can happen. So there's like all this specialty care involved that our diabetes case managers are making sure like people are attending their appointments but not only that but finding what barriers they're experiencing in attending the attending their appointments like okay do you have a ride do you have a way to get there um do you have enough money to get there things like that so that's where our case management team comes in and lastly we do have a care coordinator and that's the person that really does that like deep dive into the insurance pandemonium Mm. (laughs) sort of like craziness of helping folks navigate cost issues and supply needs so they help people get at get people connected to those continuous glucose monitors to their medication helping them apply for patient assistance programs there actually are like patient assistance programs for a lot of diabetes medication but i don't think pharmacies necessarily like advertise those yeah Yeah. it's just like okay this is the cost of your medication and people are like well i can't afford that so now what and it's like yeah they're they're not aware of the tools that they have or the the programs that exist out there that they can ask for yeah so they help apply for that and they also help like fight insurance companies i mean i think a lot of people will you know their their provider will prescribe them a medication and the insurance says nope we're not going to cover that and people are like okay well i guess that's it like that's that's the limitation and like i can't get that medication but our care coordinator can help file an appeal around that decision and help overturn that decision so that people can get the medication that truly would be the best fit for them but if no one was there to fight for them like Mm -hmm. they might just say okay well what's my next option yeah so it it I, I'm sure it's life-changing to have an ally in your corner when it comes to figuring this all out, um, especially if, you know, this is not something, if it's a new diagnosis and, and somebody, you know, has all those other factors about, like, social determinants of health that might prevent them from seeking care. Like, not only do you have to learn what this new diagnosis is and how it impacts your life, but you also have to take those steps to, you know, to, to, to manage it. So I it's it strikes me as incredibly necessary that we have this uh, wide variety of people on the team that can can uh, assist in all corners of a patient's life. So um, this this kind of has been answered in a way, but I I find especially within an organization as large as Howard Brown with so many programs um, and even just on like a, a national like research landscape sometimes. Um, these conditions that have been around for a while sometimes are not front of mind for healthcare providers, especially um, considering we've had two, you know, pandemics or, or epidemics re- recently that kind of take precedence in funding a lot of times. Um, how do you advocate that, uh, or, or what do you say to advocate to somebody that diabetes is? Uh, and should be front of mind for healthcare providers, um, that it should be given the same amount of resources that other programs do, um, despite it, you know, being uh, a, I wouldn't say well-known because I, I mean, I obviously didn't know any of this, um, but despite it being a condition that's been around for for a while and people think they know enough about it, how, how do you sure. continue to advocate that it, it gets the amount of, of attention and resources it needs? Yeah, I mean, I think... 
it definitely deserves our ongoing attention and resources, like even merely for the sake of how many people are affected. I mean, mm. nearly 40 million people in the United States are living with diabetes and like a major part of what impacts their ability to manage our social determinants. Like, like I mentioned, food access, financial security, transportation access, like all those basic necessities of life that provide people with a sense of stability. Um, so I think just like the sheer number of people that are affected and sort of like all of the things that are in like our government's control of like providing, you know, resources. Like if we tackled some of those social determinants of health, like I'm sure the number of people living with diabetes would significantly decrease, but there's just so much involved in it. I mean, like I've had patients tell me like, I feel like a cash cow for the pharmaceutical industry mm. um, because they are making a ton of money off of my really complex condition. Um, and so I think it deserves our attention because like it severely impacts quality of life. And I'm not saying that people with diabetes can't have high quality of life. They absolutely can. But I think in order to do that, it comes with a certain level of privilege and access to resources that not everyone has. Um, and like stress, I think, is something that isn't talked about enough when it comes to diabetes. Like stress is something that can actually really bring up someone's blood sugar. So like if folks are stressing about- Apologies for the siren. It's not an episode of Treading Poor Health unless we have a siren that goes by. And I always <laughs> just say like, just to prove to you that we are locally based in Chicago and needed a siren. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. it should be going away. Sorry to interrupt your statement there. No, that's okay. Uh, that's the reality of the city we live in. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, if folks are stressing about where their next meal is coming from, like how is someone expected to yeah. manage their diabetes? So I think resources like really need to go towards not only things like food access programs, added transportation options, but like infrastructure and urban mm. planning. Like I don't think people realize like urban planning and public health are heavily interconnected. And so like we're absolutely capable like as a society of building healthy communities by building our physical environment to be conducive to that. So, I mean, I think for all of those reasons, like more, you know, resources should be uh, and more attention should go towards diabetes because like people are, I mean, I, I've worked with several patients that have passed away or had significant numbers of amputations, feet, hands. And like, I mean, that reduces quality of life so significantly. And I think if we paid more attention to the factors that impact diabetes more so than just diabetes themselves like the diabetes itself like yeah we can invest money in medication and all of this stuff but like we're not really treating the root of the problem which is all of those social determinants yeah excellent point i was gonna follow up with you know so we get the funding where does it go um because yeah you can treat diabetes kind of strikes me as a um uh not not a a result I was gonna say consequences but it, diabetes strikes me as a result of a lot of those other factors um and, and social determinants of health not not receiving attention and not having funding from our government or local government or you know everything like that so it it strikes me as a good investment in just general public health to to continue to research diabetes and all the factors that influence treatment of it and and base our funding off of all of those things like you said urban planning and and lifestyle choices and availability of food and and all of that stuff um 
and also a great plug because one of our un- upcoming episodes is about urban planning in Chicago and how oh. the layout of the city awesome. impacts social determinants of health and, and everything like that. So uh, thanks for that free plug on that. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, diabetes just kind of, uh, I, I see it as like a, um, a little uh, web connecting all of these different um I mean, you, you could focus on all, and, and we do focus on all of those things individually, um, but diabetes is a condition that arises out of all of those things as a whole. Um, so if you can kind of connect the dots and, and, and draw the lines, so to speak, it probably paints a really interesting picture of the health of our communities as a whole. Um, anyways, I don't know. That wasn't a question. It was just kind of a statement of me articulating <laughs> my thoughts on everything. So... Um, you brought it up a little, but the cost of insulin continues to be uh, a big talking point in the U.S., both for, um, you know, people either working in the healthcare field, people living with diabetes, um, just general people in the U.S. I feel like it's con- consistently made headlines as kind of a barometer of cost of healthcare and medications in general. Like, people talk about big pharma, they are always talking about um, insulin as well. So I know... Um, you're not necessarily uh, a, a pharmaceutical professional, and that's not the right term for that, but um, can you speak a little bit about the cost of, of insulin, why it might be that way? Because um, I, I honestly, aside from just like general greed, I don't know why it costs that much. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm not sure there's really too much outside of that, but oh, like, okay. no, I mean, I'm not a policy expert by yeah. any means, but like I can say that like the price of insulin is one that, that heavily impacts our patients and can be extremely challenging to support with. Like uh, patients often don't actually have a choice in the type of healthcare coverage they have. Like, mm-hmm. sure, there is like this illusion that we get to go in the marketplace and choose our plan or, mm-hmm. you know, um, but based on like various aspects of life, whether that's your age, disability, income, like, et cetera, plans are actually really chosen for you based on your circumstances that you can't always necessarily change. So, and cost varies greatly. Like in the last 10 ish years, like the price of some insulin has increased by 200%. Like Oof. it's significant. And like, even though legislation was passed to cap insulin prices for Medicare recipients at $35 a month, like. Was that recent? Like a, a Biden? Yes. Uh, accomplish- yeah. Okay. Because I, I, yeah, again, I feel like I remember reading about that. Then, yeah, so. it was recent. But like, then there's the rest of the population that doesn't have that benefit. Mm. Um, so I think there's a lot of legislative work and advocacy done to be done around this issue. And I think like if people want to advocate for change around this and not be seeing headlines of like people crossing to Canada and Mexico for insulin, like I think a like continue bringing awareness to the issue. Like those headlines are important, but also voting for lawmakers that are going to support insulin price caps in the private market. Mm, The private market. That makes sense because... Yeah, I had read that headline and I, you know, I was like, oh, great, good, like a, a price cap. But uh, that clarification of like, it's only for some people and mm-hmm. probably not even the people that need that price cap the most. Um, so, or, or, well, you said in the private, so I got that backwards. So the p- the price cap right now is for Medicare recipients. Okay, so, so that is who needs it. That is absolutely, folks, yeah, that's definitely a population okay. that significantly needs it, but I feel like because of our fragmented healthcare system, like, there's still so many people that fall right. through the cracks. Okay, so, that yeah. makes sense, that makes sense. Um, so I know there's some, like, grants and programs to assist with that. Um, can you go into a little more detail about like what resources we might have to offer? And if somebody uh, feels that insulin is out of their, you know, uh, uh, 
price range, I guess that's a bad way to say it, but yeah, I mean, there's still like super cheap insulin options. Like we have some patients that go to Walmart and get really cheap insulin granted, not the greatest, but are there different qualities of insulin? Yes. Like I think, I think our end volunteer endocrinologist called it insulin from the 1950s. I want to say is what he called it. So yeah, there is like variations in like quality and um see that's not something i would have even i was just assuming insulin is insulin but there's different like qualities of it yeah i mean like don't quote me i'm not a a pharmacist or anything but like that is one quote that did stand out to me from uh, a clinical professional um so like yeah it is that there are different price points um and there are also various resources. It's just a matter of like awareness. Mm. So like I said, there are those like patient assistance programs, but most of the time you have to go directly to the manufacturer for that. And Uh. so like, you know, that's not something that's heavily advertised. So like that's where luckily we have that care coordinator who can search for those programs directly through manufacturers and help patients apply. I think like it's purposely designed to be Be difficult difficult. to access. Mm -hmm. Um, like not only in the sense that this information isn't always readily available, but there's all this paperwork involved and sometimes it has to be done, you know, like on the computer and for older adults that don't know how to navigate that stuff. Like there's that added challenge. Um, But at least like we do have our 340B program. So, you know, that's a program that allows like clinics like Howard Brown to stretch like limited federal resources to reduce the price of outpatient pharmaceuticals. Um, so, you know, we, uh, one of our, uh, diabetes educators who's a pharmacist developed this incredible tool that is just like a searchable database sort of for diabetes medication, um, that allows us to see what those 340B prices are. So if, you know, a provider prescribes a brand name medication that is not covered under 340B and the patient arrives to the pharmacy and they're like, uh, can't pay $500. Sorry. What are my other options? Like we might be able to switch that prescription to a sort of I mean, I can't say truly equivalent, but somewhat equivalent, yeah, comparable medication that can cost them $12 instead. Yeah. So. Okay. That's, that makes sense because it it reminded me of, you know, as a um, cis gay man having to reach out to Gilead for their Mm -hmm. advancing access program. There was a period of time where I didn't have healthcare and I needed to prep and having to go directly to the manufacturer to get like a coupon seems Silly, but yeah, it, it's exactly the same situation where it was difficult to find. Yep. Um, had to like liaise with this random case manager from their program to like deem if I was like worthy of it and things. And <laughs> yeah. it, it's this whole like rigmarole yep. to try to get this medication that should be readily available. So yeah, the, it, I mean, it, it's for anybody that works in the pharmaceutical industry, I'm sure what you just described is not a surprise to them uh, in terms of trying to find comparable medications that are covered or not covered or getting um, you know, funding from the actual manufacturer. And, yeah. and and unfortunately, most pharmacists, I've had a couple where you know I'll go in for uh, a medication and it's really expensive and I didn't know any better. And they'd just be like, you can either use this coupon or we can you know give you, they can't switch medications as a pharmacist, but like, kind of educated me on what the options were um but most don't have the time and so having case managers to be able to kind of step in and say here are our options when you go here's what you should ask about 
that kind of thing. Yeah, it's definitely a complex dance, a sort of tango with, (laughs) you know, the industry, absolutely. Very much so. Um, And you... Cool, and, but we, we are getting close on time, so I, I always ask the question at the close, close to the end of every episode, and inevitably it always brings up more questions, so maybe it's not close <laughs> to the end, but um, what do you want people to take away from this episode regarding diabetes care? Because I always like to try to like put a bow on things in terms of if somebody listened to this, didn't know anything, what would you want them to walk away from? Yeah. Or walk away with, excuse me. Sure. Um, I think I really want people to understand that like diabetes is no one's fault like diabetes is a condition like any other that just happens for so many reasons that are outside of our control like I want people to understand that even though someone may be living with diabetes they can still have a high quality of life they can enjoy a fulfilling lifestyle that doesn't feel overly restrictive you know I think people are under the impression that there's like a lot of no's a lot of don'ts a lot of off-limits things um but in reality it's just about moderation like being mindful about the choices we make and allowing ourselves to enjoy the things that we we love in a way that can still keep us healthy um so uh, there are a lot of resources out there to support diabetes management um so i think i want what i want most out of this is for people who are not living with diabetes to hear this and think about those in their lives that do have diabetes and i hope that folks realize that shaming or like being the food police is Mm. not helpful and like I'm sure they wouldn't appreciate someone doing that to them either so I think solutions and changes really have to come from within an individual and the role people can play in the lives of folks living with diabetes is super important and like they can be the type of person that's going to support them in flourishing and helping folks come to those conclusions themselves. You brought up a concept that is uh, a big factor in a lot of hard bonds programs, which is harm reduction. Um, enabling, I always describe it to people who don't understand it as like enabling patients to live the life that they're going to lead while minimizing all the negative health impacts of it, um, if possible. That's kind of a, a some oversimplification of it, maybe. Um, but in terms of diabetes, like you said, it's not shaming, it's not. Um, you know, being the food police, it's educating and empowering people to make choices that is good for their healthcare and makes sense for them. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I love harm reduction as a framework. I think it's absolutely incredible. And I think a lot of the focus around harm reduction is usually associated with like drug use, mm-hmm. um, which like there can be intersections with, with, with that and diabetes. Like for example, if there's someone who, um, is living with diabetes and uses like a form of harm reduction for them might be like while they're using like having a friend or a family member there to check their blood sugar and administer insulin if needed or it can look completely different it can be you know harm reduction that's very diabetes oriented like i had a patient who was like Anais, I cannot live without my orange juice. Like, I Mm. need my orange juice in my daily life. And I was like, okay, like, that is a non-negotiable. Let's work with that. Can, are you open to diluting it every other day with some water um, or, you know, adding some seltzer or just like, I mean, harm reduction for diabetes, I think, yeah, is something that isn't super popular to, like, talk about or 
isn't very well known as a concept that can be applied to diabetes care, but it absolutely is. And I think it can look so different for everyone. Um, and I think is an incredible tool to use. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One last point and then, and then, then we'll wrap it up. Uh, this, <laughs> this also feels like it plays into the other concept that comes up a lot on this show, which is stigma, um, and kind of how, people deal with the social perceptions of whatever, um, you know, condition or diagnoses they might have. Um, and I feel like the narrative I was always given regarding uh, at least type 2 diabetes was that, mm -hmm. like, there is a result of your own choices, and, and if you have it or are struggling with it, then you just must not have, you know, the discipline enough to, to, to moderate things, which obviously is not the case, and there's a lot more nuance that goes into it. So how do we... Um, kind of debunk that actively uh, in terms of just the way that we talk about diabetes and the way that we talk about food and eating choices because like you said being you know the food police is not helpful I had a relative in my life um, who has since passed but had type 2 diabetes and um, his wife was constantly the food police um, in a non-helpful way uh, and as a result he did not you know, not, none of his behavior has changed. Um, and so it's just kind of case of point of like, that whether or not what you're saying is correct, it has to make sense for the person that's receiving that message. Um, and, and it has to fit into the lifestyle that they want. That's long-winded and, and a tangent. But to re restate my question, how do we... How do we build, debunk that narrative of type 2 being something that people quote-unquote deserve or, or that they, you know, their lifestyle warrants and, 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 and how do we kind of repaint diabetes? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of language out there like that and um, it's really unfortunate because I think a lot of it is just based in misinformation mm -hmm. and like, you know, aside from like all the social determinant factors that like go into into diabetes like we've already talked about, like, I think like the origin of this idea and sort of like media portrayal is really from a place of privilege and like people that have the benefit of choice. So that's like so much of our healthcare system is based on studies and data that's like focused primarily on white folks or data from BIPOC folks that did not consent to what was being done mm. to them or studies that didn't disclose the harm or risks that the study was putting them in. So like people might not realize that some of the screening guidelines for diabetes are racially biased, that things like a BMI is not the best uh, or sole metric to use to discuss diabetes risk. Actually, there's a guideline called um, Screen at 23 for uh, uh, Asian American and Pacific Islanders because they're at risk for diabetes at a lower BMI than what's typically screened for. So um, there's a lot of stigma around diabetes because lifestyle choices are a part of it. But I think that's the key point is that it is just one component out of many that impacts the development of diabetes. And for a lot of folks, like we can't even call these unhealthy choices per se, because so many people, like I said, don't have a choice in what they eat or the safety of their neighborhood doesn't allow them to go on a walk or a run. So like no one deserves to be shamed over choices that they never even had to begin with or have the privilege of having. So I think part of what we can do to change that portrayal is by changing the language that we use around diabetes. So like even the word diabetic like that is reducing someone to their condition like there's so much more to a person than just their diabetes so I think it's preferable to say like a person living with diabetes or a person with diabetes um, I think a lot of the language that providers use can also add to stigma and shame like we 
in healthcare talk a lot about diabetes control. Mm. Um, and like control is like virtually impossible for to achieve in a condition where like your body is not doing what it's supposed to be doing per right. se. By definition, you can't control. That. Right, yeah. right. You can't control it. So I think a much better term is manage or management. Um, I think there's also a lot of language around like cheating and like cheat meals mm. and sneaking snacks or whatever, like, or like food that's good and food that's bad. Like there's no food that's good or bad. Food is food. Um, and like there might be food that's more nutrient dense or less nutrient dense, but at the end of the day, like if you can get access to food to eat, to feed your body, like that is something. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think moving away from like value judgments to more neutralized language, like instead of good or bad food, just food or like, instead of like cheating or sneaking, we can say things like making decisions or making choices. Um, and I think there's still a lot of language around like normal versus mm. abnormal. Like someone who is not living with diabetes is considered quote unquote normal. And like the, the opposite of normal is abnormal and people with diabetes are not abnormal. So right. they don't want to, nobody wants to be labeled as abnormal. Right. That's not <laughs> yeah. helpful at all. No. So I think like just starting with some of those basic things around like changing the language. And I think most importantly, like providers changing the language that they use in um, the exam rooms with patients mm -hmm. can make a world of difference and people can walk away feeling empowered versus shamed which i'm sure a lot of people do right now so i think like there is a vast opportunity for us to change the way that we approach diabetes care yeah that's an excellent point and thank you for bringing in language because i always try to and i don't think i had uh specifically addressed that in this episode where language feels like always the the first step or at least the easiest step to conquer stigma whether it's related to you know diabetes hiv whatever um we're treating here at howard brown the way that we talk about it always feels like the, the simplest thing to change. Um, it, it's something I've tried to do in, uh, since starting to work at Howard Brown. Um, it's been a year now. Uh, but, you know, modifying language, um, I think, is also empowering to people that don't know how to interact or engage with a condition. Um, you, you may have the best intentions, but if you don't know how to properly talk about something, you're not going to correct somebody else for using the wrong language and you're not going to, um, you know, actively try to take on that stigma yourself because it's hard, you don't, you don't know how to engage. So I love the concrete tips in regards to like, we're living with something, we aren't that something, you know, we, um, we are empowering, we're not, you know, we're managing, we're not, we're, we're not controlling that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, so I, yeah, I just appreciate those, those little baby steps that we can all take regardless of whether or not we have, um, you know, a vested, you know, personal connection to diabetes, it's easy to change. And it's also a reminder, whether it's pronouns or how we refer to people's conditions or anything, making mistakes is acceptable. Uh, and, and saying, oh, I meant to say X, X, Y, Z. Um, that's good. Just keep going and keep trying. So um, I already asked what you want people to take away. So I won't rehash that question. But this has been such a wonderful episode to kind of dive deeper into into diabetes because, like I said at the top, it feels like um, a, a case-closed kind of condition where people learn about it or, you know, in, in high school health and then if it's not something that's a factor in their life, kind of forget about. Um, and so it's always good to, to 
to re-educate ourselves and, and to know how, how to how to engage and hopefully what we can do to change the landscape of things. So, Anais, I won't keep you any longer. Uh, the running joke is we'll have to have you back. I say that to every guest I have, and it's never disingenuous because there's always more to talk about and, and uh, deeper things to learn um, and, and engage with. But that being said, we'll have to have you back. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And that has been our episode about American Diabetes Month and Howard Brown's case management for diabetes. If you're interested in uh, the resources that Howard Brown offers regarding diabetes, I will link it in the description of the episode below. Thanks for listening.